It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome, welcome, welcome back to a full one-hour episode of Miked Up on OM Radio. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and I'm here with part two of my conversation with my friend, Katie Dudley. If you remember, uh, last week, I invited Katie to sit down with me and talk about all things disaster capitalism and tourism from the perspective of someone who recently did um, her PhD research in that area. Katie recently, uh, she recently earned her PhD studying things like parks and recreation, disaster capitalism, tourism, and she used the city of New Orleans as the focus of her research. And if you're familiar with New Orleans, you know that that city has so many parallels to our city here in Charleston, specifically when it comes down to tourism and hospitality. So that's what you'll hear next. And after that, after I conclude part two of my conversation with Katie, I'm going to invite a yet another pivotal, important voice, that of Jacova Williams. And I'm going to come back and give her the proper intro. But listen to Katie and I talk about disaster capitalism and tourism here in Charleston and New Orleans. Imagine, let's imagine that um, I was running for mayor and for some reason, uh, Phil took a pay cut and wanted to be my campaign manager. No, no, no. <laughs> well, let's just say I ran for mayor of Charleston and I was elected and I wanted to bring in you as a consultant to help me kind of turn things back around. Um, how would you advise a city like Charleston? To, because right now what we're facing, uh, you, you, I'm sure you had some exposure to it um, you know, while you were here, rampant uh, overdevelopment. Um, we have the the fastest growing, um, fastest gentrifying city. We are the fastest gentrifying city Charleston is. Um, North Charleston uh, is the city that boasts the most evictions in the nation. Um, yeah, so, and I know that's on the outside, but, you know, how we do things impacts other areas. Um, mm. And the workforce that services this place come from North Charleston because they no longer can live here on the peninsula. How would you advise me, the mayor, to start putting some changes in place to kind of right this, right this wrong? Right. So I really do think, um, you know, I know that we, we kind of overuse this idea of bottom-up development. Um, and, a, you know, as a one-size-fits-all, it, it doesn't always work. Um, but I think the first thing um, that I would bring to your attention um, as the mayor is the number of businesses, especially tourism-based businesses that have had to close their doors because according to them, they did not have enough workers. Um, so we know that tourism is not only a low wage, um, but it's also a low skill. Um, and, I, and I really, I guess I hate that term too. It's a soft skill. It's a soft, soft skill profession. Um, and and so you can, you know, somebody who may not have a college degree um, or even a high school degree could come in and work these jobs. Um, so for so many companies to say, um, you know, to use the, uh, the J-1 visas and things because we don't have enough workers, we do have plenty of workers. So that right there is kind of, would be my central focus of 
Um, you know, I, it's definitely a housing and, a, and, um, and transportation and all of that. Um, but to get, to get the attention of the people who are looking at it from the economic sustainability is right now what it's showing is you're not economically sustainable because you have businesses closing your doors. Now it's time to go out and see why those businesses are closing their doors, why the workers can't do it. Um, so yeah, so I would, I would do, um, suggest a tourism audit, what you already have, um, what you can offer, um, what the infrastructure can hold. Can the infrastructure hold anything else? Um, no, <laughs> Charleston, like New Orleans is going to sink <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's our, it's already started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So an audit, I think that sounds um, interesting. I know we've done, um, we've completed audits, uh, at least for the law enforcement here. There've been some, some, uh, disparity studies completed by the Avery Research um, Center, but an audit of tourism, I'd have to do my research and see if that even even happened here. Um, I'd love to see if anyone even dared to commission one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, what are your, I, I don't, and I'm not trying to make you an alarmist or even make you, I guess, just think of all these dystopian um, hypothe hypothetical situations. Um, but let's say, um, take coronavirus off the the off the table for now let's say this hurricane season um de deals another blow to local tourism um is is this a, is any way you would recommend or is anything you could think of that can help folks prepare for that in any way shape or form sure. or the, yeah a, some certain considerations folks can make yeah so as far as that so what what is really interesting right now is kind of on um, the academic listservs what people are are batting around at each other is um, you know because when a hurricane happens we've done a lot of research on crisis management a lot of that crisis management is really rooted in PR how do we get people comfortable coming back here so that we can start building up the area um, more and so you see some of the people still kind of talking about that in talking about the coronavirus in, in that way of like, when is this going to pass? We know that it's going to have so much um, economic impact, especially on tourism. Um, but what can we do? And so what people are now saying is, is this is our, is this our time to just dismantle tourism as we know it? Um, is it finally time for us to say industrial tourism does not, is not sustainable? Um, and so in you know, the biggest representation of industrial tourism is cruises. Um, and we see how hard they've been hit. So is this a time to, um, to educate travelers on different ways to travel and more responsible ways to travel after people have gotten used to not traveling you know, business as usual. Um, so is it a break and we can start to do that? And is it also a break in development? Now do we start to scale back and we start to get back to these smaller locally owned places? Um, and as far as the hurricane season, I really think, especially since we get, 
you know, since now we're having more and more, and, and now that I'm out in California, we've got the fires and everything. And so I think that if we continue as business as usual in tourism, um, yeah, we're just going to see the same problem. I don't see any way to mitigate the same problems that we see with each hurricane. Um, because the way that it is now is there's such a gap between, you know, the developers and the, and the business owners and the people who sustain the industry that you're always going to see them get hit harder. Um, you're going to see the, the Hiltons of the world build back. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I kind of, you know, we have, we have all kinds of tourism that we talk about of hopeful tourism and, and all of this. And, and so I think at this point, I'm really latching on to this hopeful tourism. What, um, what does that look like? Because I'd love to imagine that. That's, this just sounds, I know it's, it sounds fantastical, like, uh, but like, what, what does that look like? I, I, like? I like what you're saying because here, what's been largely whitewashed away um, has been the Gullah culture. Mm-hmm. And typically it's served either, um, Gullah is served up either from the perspective of, hey, this bad thing called slavery happened and these folks sang songs and cooked rice. And, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm being facetious, but but that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's how it feels. And so, like, for me, hopeful tourism would look like, you know, you, you know, I, I guess a, <clears throat> a stop at um, perhaps someone's home that has been maybe designated as, a bona fide tourism destination and that person gives you tours and, and gives you a peek behind what Gullah culture looks like in the kitchen or um or language wise or crafts and whatnot it wouldn't just all be at you know at the slave market downtown in our French Quarter it would be everywhere throughout the low country um but what does hopeful tourism look to look like to you yeah yeah so so very similarly um so like Costa Rica right now, so Costa Rica, you know, in the nineties, they were, they were kind of the, they set the standard for ecotourism this day and age. What does ecotourism really even mean? Um, if you went and developed a land for tourism to make money, but you did it using a lead certified hotel, does that still kind of contradict itself? Maybe we didn't need to develop that land to begin with. Um, so but so ecotourism did that and then it kind of, you know, then it kind of greenwashed it out. Um, and we, and we know, uh, in Costa Rica, there's definitely areas like that, but, but the local government there did double down again. And they say, they say, no, we want to get back to this. And so they're actually, um, the government gives out loans, um, for people who want to, especially, um, people in rural communities who want to develop tourism. And, and it looks kind of exactly like what you were talking about. Um, and they, pre- they provide avenues and marketing and, and help um, to get people who, who want to have like kind of a truly uh, eco uh, travel experience um, to go in and do that. So I think that's kind of the first part of it um, is that, again, it has to just be a change in the priorities of the government um, and create opportunity because like what you're describing right now um, with the Gullah people, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding bad, but, but you know that like if it was, <laughs> we'll have the same person wanting to have the same 
create a tour company or to create a company. And if, if they're black or if they're white, they have a much different opportunity to get a loan for that. Um, right. Like, that, exactly that. So like tourism looks only um, legitimate, and I'm using air quotes, legitimate tourism mm-hmm. only looks like the carriage tours and the, right. the costumes and whatnot. But to me, legitimate or, you know, credible tourism looks like my dad you know, telling you all about Wadmala Island from the perspective of a man that was born in 1939, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it, right, the, the process to get credentialed and um, to receive certain, I guess, certifications here is, is crazy. Um, yeah, or to even start a business. To yeah. start a business. And um, yeah. I actually, I actually recently encountered this um, when I went to Buford for voting, um, you know, education purposes, and I encountered a, a Black entrepreneur um, he ran his own tours and it was gullah themed. And yet, you know, he looked nothing like the guys that I grew up, you know, mm. listening to on a carriage ride downtown. Um, and I loved that though. It was real mm. and it was off the beaten path, um, so to speak. But yeah, I'd love to see that held up as the standard as opposed to the whitewashed version. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I would say hopeful tourism again, it's, it's this idea of, um, because even Disney did this recently where they kind of pulled back um, because it was getting overcrowded um, and it was affecting the experience and everything else. So they even pulled back on how many people can come in at a time. Um, I, I didn't know that. And, and that's when you were talking about hopeful uh, tourism, that's what I was thinking because I'm like, it would help with this congestion. Like Charleston is ridiculous. We're full. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I'm like, when you want to decentralize, all of this stuff by like pulling folks into Somerville and maybe pulling some folks over to, to John's Island or Edisto or Ravenel. Yeah. These, mm-hmm. I didn't know Disney did that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, um, there's a term called over tourism that's kicked around a lot. Um, and, um, it, yeah, people are kind of torn on whether we really like that phrase over tourism, but essentially, um, and especially, you know, places like Barcelona and all of that, where it's just chaos. Um, so they've, they've done demarketing and they're actually putting, pulling back their marketing efforts um, because it's, we went for so long of tourism development is good and let's put our, you know, let's, let's push it to the floor and we'll think about what the consequences later. Um, so, so relatively recently, um, people have started saying, no, that's not the answer. And instead of, you know, a DMO being a destination marketing organization, it needs to be a destination management organization um, and looking at the effects um, of what happens. And so, yeah. Um, and I just really, yeah, I think, I think the, a big part of it is we need to have um, a fundamental shift in how we view the tourism workers. Um, and again, we know when we go back historically, we can see, you know, um, as, the, as the labor force was segmented in the US, as the rise of the labor party and all of that, um, we can start to see who was relegated out of the good paying jobs um, into service jobs. And, and, and those same demographics are the ones who make up tourism jobs now. So um, I'm, not, I'm not in full belief um, that it's just an economic reason that we don't respect the tourism workers. I think it's a social 
social and cultural belief too. And yeah, and so, um, so these companies, these multi-billion dollar companies um, are able to get other people on board by saying, well, we just couldn't afford to pay them more. Um, so I think we've got to, how we view the workforce um, because like what, what you were talking about um, with the hurricanes and the hotel that you're in right now, um, what we don't think about is how much pressure we put on these people also. Um, so in a hurricane, they're the last ones to evacuate. They're the last ones to lock the door behind them. Um, in the fires, it's the same way. Right now in the coronavirus, they're still the ones out on the front line. Um, we've got really interesting things in LA County. Um, before any of this even started, um, they were, um, uh, a lot of the unsheltered population were using LAX as a place to live. And, you know, it's open uh, 24-7. You know, there's people coming and going. Um, but so now you have frontline tourism workers essentially working almost as a social worker um, and doing that. And, and, you know, and now we're having talks of, of uh, placing a lot of the unsheltered populations in hotels right now to try and stop the spread of the virus. Um, but are we going to have hotel workers cleaning those rooms and what kind of how vulnerable does it make them? So it's not only do we do we not respect them, we just really um, they're invisible to us. It's very invisible. And like um, I, I have that awareness. I'm not saying that I'm holier than anyone, but I have mm -hmm. that awareness. And yet, um, you know, it really impacted me today when it was it was quiet when I first checked in two days ago but it's like eerily quiet now like I don't even hear other guests and I was mm -hmm. surprised when someone knocked on my door a few hours ago to perform housekeeping mm -hmm. and and, I, and um you know the first thing I thought about was wow I hope that I didn't put this person at risk I, you know I try to stay here but I did venture out, take a walk, you know, and, and then I thought about what this person has to do. I thought about the, the furlough, the guy speaking about furlough with the valet, mm. you know, the brown bags for breakfast. And um, yeah, it make, it's sobering to, to think about it. Um, I'd like to ask you, because you're in this field now, you're teaching this to, to students in Long Beach. Um, what, First, uh, uh, an authority on this subject matter. Are, are there one or a number of voices that you found to be very interesting um, and noteworthy as you compiled your research? Let's see. Um, as far as tourism scholars? Yeah, or authorities on, um, I know that there, I think at one time I texted you real random. I was house sitting at a friend's house and she had some great books about, she's an advocate for local business and local economies and talking, you know, strengthening small business, businesses. And she had, I forgot what the book was. I sent it to you because my phone crashed and I don't even have the old text. Um, mm. But um, it was a book about, someone about smart developing of cities that I think maybe you had it in your research or it was an author that you actually like to read? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember that one off the top of my head, but I remember the, the conversation about it. Um, but yeah, because it is such, um, uh, an interesting and wicked problem and the way that academics 
academic research is set up is, um, and I kind of, I, I feel like I kind of lucked out in the sense that I didn't know what it meant to be a scholar. So I didn't find out that this was really kind of how it worked until after the fact of, if I'm doing tourism research, I only read tourism scholars and I build on that research. Well, what I found is I couldn't find tourism scholars doing what I was wanting to do fully. Um, so there were a few, um, there's uh, Raul Bianchi. Um, he does a lot of political economy um, within tourism. Um, and so that really, his writing really started to make me look at things a little bit differently. Um, and then of course, Naomi Klein is the one who coined uh, disaster capitalism. Um, and so that drove pretty much my second article um, of looking at how tourism um, helps perpetuate and drive uh, disaster capitalism. I just, I'm looking around right now. I just read a book yeah. the other day. But yeah, so what I really like to do, because um, what I talk, you know, whenever I mentioned about looking at um, the segmentation of the labor force and things, and so it's been kind of an after fact, um, but look back and say, because we really kind of started studying tourism in like the 50s or 60s, and so we don't really look at it from a historical standpoint. So I've been um, reading books on gentrification. Um, I've got this one right here called The Color of Law uh, by Richard Rothstein. <laughs> and so, yeah, just, and so, and because again, so many people don't think of tourism as something to think about um, and study with it. So I like to get those foundations and then say like, oh, well, this is starting to point to how this tourism destination is set up and structured right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, um, that sounds great because those are some of the books or um, at least uh, Naomi Klein is definitely a name I've heard of. And mm -hmm. of course, uh, you read anything on gentrification. Um, well, specifically the color of law, like that's really an, an important read to understand mm -hmm. our, like our priorities in a place like Charleston. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, thank you for that. Um, are there any, um, any things that you've authored um, that is published that folks could read? Um, I guess is your your research published so for folks to read? <laughs> or am I the am I the only one with the with a good copy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to read my dissertation, I'll I'll send it to you. But yeah, right now I'm in the in the process of uh, chopping it up and sending it out and and having strangers tell you. <laughs> tell you their thoughts on it so I'm still in that process of it but yeah no well I, I look forward to it and now that I know that it isn't this booming uh, academic field <laughs> rife with scholars um, I think that you're probably someone that folks will point to uh, in years to come um, yeah. as maybe a trailblazer in this area because um, it, it really is important and I think like you said a lot of folks are not paying attention to the workforce Mm -hmm. And um, there is a way to invest in people and there is a way to invest in um, communities uh, where you're not just having to sell off every inch of the city um, to the highest bidding developer. And um, right. um, I think, yeah, yeah. You only invest in like yeah. the one square mile. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's, so, it's, it's just, not, it just literally isn't sustainable. Um, I guess before, before I just say bye, um, is there anything 
that you reflected on regarding the coronavirus in cities for cities um, reflected on for cities like New Orleans and in, in, in like Charleston or anything you're thinking about? Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think maybe with all of us, there's just, there's so much going on that it's hard to wrap your head around what part of it you want to look at and think about. Um, but yeah, I guess to kind of, uh, to, to come full circle and, and put a bow on, um, you know, whenever I said Katrina, um, exposed a lot of the social ills that so many people, um, in the city and, and who did that type of research, um, knew was there and it got exposed. And that's what I really, on a much larger scale, um, I think we're having the same thing, especially from my perspective, looking at a tourism workforce is um, anyone who works in the industry or has, you know, done research on it. Um, we all knew that it was there and now it's, it, it's finally uncovering all of this. Um, and so as far as what's going to happen, I don't know. I hope more places step up. Um, there are organizations, um, I can't remember the name of it, one of them, but they specifically uh, will, will give loans to like bartenders so you can reach out to them and get a loan. Um, yeah, so I, I, I saw some news today, even with the SBA and whatnot. Um, well, there are some people intervening for um, this type of workforce that's going to be yeah, I'm going to look that up as well, see if I can find yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, I, and, and the suspension of evictions, and, and I hope um, that all of this stays, stays long enough, but I, I know the one that I just saw today where it was, they were going to suspend evictions until like April or June or something, um, but the backside of that was, and then you'll be expected to catch up your rent. And it was like, well, that doesn't make sense. It's not no. like these people are making money between now and then. Right. Like, keeping like, yeah. yeah. And I'm afraid of that shoe dropping as well, especially with these corporations, you know, wanting, um, wanting to be bailed out. Um, I'm like, no, like, especially when you bought back $5 billion worth of stocks, like, right. you, want, you know, it's not fair. And yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, mm -hmm in terms of some of some of the things that at least I find beneficial is that the recent political, um, you know, campaign season, at least from the Democratic side, it did give voice to a lot of um, solutions that like, like with Andrew Yang's, um, you know, mm -hmm. thousand bucks a month. That's actually something folks will actually see that. Um, right. I think, I think Elizabeth Warren's been someone from an economic standpoint been a huge um leader in terms of what we should do in times like this so um granted that's all from one side um but but i i'd, I'd hope that i like to think that some of the ideas that were floated by some of the more vet uh you know some of the more uh capable campaigns i hope to see some of that be put in place as well to make sure that the little guy doesn't get shorted because uh the fr we're still reeling from 08 i think people don't realize how much and mm -hmm. um we we didn't do America didn't do be the best things for the people. And I hope that the people are considered first. This yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, it, it, you know, because, because they've been invisible for so long, because again, when someone's on vacation, they don't want to think mm -hmm. that like, Oh, the person serving me, you know, um, mm -hmm. 
So yeah, right, they, right. they should. But, yeah, um, it's, it's it's hard. Like we some we're sometimes we're complicit, um, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really hard because you, yeah, yeah. So I think that a lot of um, a lot of the this workforce has been left out of a lot of movements um, that doesn't quite make it down as far as as you know tourism and service. So I'm kind of hoping that because it's it's uncovering this. Because I have seen the tourism workers referenced on TV and the news, um, on Twitter, on everything more than I've ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping, here's that hopeful, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that when people can actually see how many of our workers truly are one paycheck away from being homeless, um, especially in tourism destinations where so much money's coming in and out, um, that we can start to think about, let's make some, like you're saying, let's make some actual choices moving forward that include them. Yeah, um, yeah me too. I'm, I'm hopeful as well. Well, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopeful. <laughs> uh, you and I can definitely reconnect and, and not just talk about your scholarship and <laughs> your great work, but um, thank you for everything you do. I just think that um, you this is tremendous work and it takes a, a special kind of person to do something like this. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate for having, uh, meting, meting, for having met you and Phil. So thank you so much for your time, Katie. Yeah, well, thank you. All right. All right. All take right. care. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. This next interview is a Holy grail interview for me. You're going to listen to uh, my interview with Jacova Williams, an economist with the economic policy Institute out in DC. Uh, Jacova's her uh, areas of expertise include applied microeconomics, culture and economics and political economy. She has received a bachelor's in mathematics from Xavier university of law, Louisiana. She has her master's in applied mathematics from University of Maryland at College Park, and she's received her PhD in economics from LSU. So listen as Jacova and I talk about her scholarship and a lot of other good stuff. So tune in. Hello, hello, Jacova. Thank you for joining me for Mic'd Up. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. And I hope I pronounced your name right. It's a beautiful name. You did. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. You did. Black mama. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So I, I wanted to reach out to you. Um, I stumbled across your research, I think, back in February of, um, of 2019. And, uh, you know, being based in South Carolina, the fact that you were uh, pursuing your, I believe it was your graduate degree from Clemson, the, the School of Business. <laughs> From LSU. Oh, I'm so sorry. LSU. Okay. Oh, no, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. I was working at Clemson at the that's, time. Oh, that's what it was. Exactly. Okay. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for that correction um, from LSU. Okay. I have a friend that went mm-hmm. to, okay. I'm about to hit up my friend who's an alum. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So I stumbled across your research while you were working at Clemson. And um, I'd just like for you to just introduce yourself again, if, if you could, and um, tell us all about just, I guess, you your studies, your work in Clemson, and mm-hmm. you're from there. Yeah, sure. So Jacoba Williams got my PhD from LSU in economics. Um, I'm what I call myself. I'm a mathematician turned economist, and I do a very um, unique type of stuff, I think, in economics. Uh, I'm a, I call myself a cultural economist. And so what that means is I look at how historical events cont- continue to influence uh, economic outcomes and the voting behavior of Blacks 
so one thing that I look at in particular, which was my a part of my dissertation, so I started doing this work at LSU, uh, probably in my third year in the program and continued it while I was an assistant professor at Clemson. And I'm still working on it as well now that I'm in DC. Uh, so it's a big project. Um, what I look at is I look at the extent to which historical racial animus continues, co continues to influence the voting behavior of blacks. Uh, and so what I do to proxy historical racial animus uh, is I look at historical lynching. Uh, so basically what happened was late 1800s, black men were given the right to vote. What did they do with this right? They voted in like large numbers. So like black voter turnout was nearly 90% during this historical time period. Uh, a lot of people weren't happy about this because when they voted, they voted for the liberal party. Uh, this is when you actually first had black politicians taking office. They were fighting for um, equal education, equal job opportunities, things of that nature. And so it angered some white Southerners, uh, in particular the KKK, but other groups as well. They went around lynching black people, telling them if you vote, you're gonna die. Um, and so what do you see? You actually started to see that voter turnout started to decrease. You also see polling taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses. I mean, there were a whole host of things that they did, but I actually look at historical lynchings because this is like the, the most violent thing that you could do is to kill someone, to lynch them. Um, and what I find is that blacks who currently reside in areas that were exposed to a relatively higher number of lynchings in the past, that they're less likely to register to vote today. They're less likely to indicate that they voted in a recent election as well, uh, compared to their white counterparts. And so what I actually say is that there's this culture uh, of not voting in the black community. Uh, and that comes from the historical, uh, historical racial animus that we experienced, that our ancestors experienced uh, through the form of lynchings. Oh, wow. That, that's just, you know, my mind is boggled. I think, yeah, we, we know um, right around uh, Reconstruction, I think that's the, the time period in which you were pointing to where uh, Black folks did have access to participating in um, the electoral process, um, but that was, mm -hmm. that was met with white supremacy and terror. And um, yep. yeah, and I think that people forget that the Reconstruction was one of the more um, progressive, the most progressive time in American politics, probably. And we yep. have, so, we, especially in South Carolina, we had so many black elected officials. Oh, yes. And yep. um, yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, though, you, you, you um, tell me again who, how you um, characterize it, what you call yourself and uh, what kind of economist? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I call myself a cultural economist. OK. Uh, so in a sense, I'm trying to see if there's like this culture uh, effect of like uh, how, basically this is how how their races acts uh, form a new culture in the black community. Wow. Okay. And so I, I want, I'm trying to draw the line also between um, what perhaps might have inspired you to even do your research in this area, being that you, you did go to a business, business school or you work for the mm -hmm. business school. But yeah, like right. how, how does, how does the, mm -hmm. the, the, the racial animus research, how does that, you know, go coincide with the work you do? Oh, yeah. 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 No, good. Yeah, no, great question. So um, for me, uh, I'm, Southern, I'm a Southerner. That's where the accent comes from. I'm from New Orleans. New Orleans is very segregated. So when I went to LSU, um, I didn't initially think that I was going to study this because I was in the business school. Um, but my advisor, thankfully, uh, introduced me to other cultural economists, other people in economics who study this type of stuff. And um, for me, I just always saw race was a huge issue uh, in the South. It's, an, it's a huge issue across the world let's just be honest about it uh it's just that you may see it more in the south um but it was one of those things where i started saying to myself i thought it was weird that i actually had friends who just didn't vote 
and you would always hear on the news and, you know, from the media, oh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, people aren't voting because of these voter ID laws and, you know, people aren't voting because of gerrymandering. And I'm definitely not saying that that does not play a role because it does. But when I would talk to my highly educated, high income friends, they would never say that. They never talked about voter ID laws. They never talked about gerrymandering. But the thing that they talked about was trust. They talked about racism. They talked about not feeling as if that they were a, a citizen, American citizen, even though they're born here, even though they are American. They never felt as if really like you're one with everyone else. And what that made me start thinking about was, again, what has happened to blacks in the past that have made them feel this way? And you actually, again, you look at slavery, you look at the terror, you look at uh, Jim Crow, you look at all of these things that you start realizing, like, these things actually have lasting impacts on people, right? And so it's not this whole idea of, like, uh, so for, for me, it's kind of one of those things of you do have current day voter suppression when you look at gerrymandering and all of that stuff, but you also have historical voter suppression. Um, and I actually think that that voter suppression isn't really talked about. And I think that we don't realize um, how much blacks feel disconnected um, from American society. And if you don't feel as if you're a part of American society, then you really don't have social capital. So why do you vote if you don't trust politicians? Like if you don't really see it actually affecting your community. And again, all of this stuff is kind of rooted in this historical racial animus. So it kind of makes it. So for, so for me, that's how my mind started thinking about it. And I was like, let me dive into this and see what happens. And then, it, and, and then to like, kind of like reiterate as well, like it has an effect on business. You know, when people don't vote, that actually has an impact on economic policies, right? So like, it's one of those things where like, it actually matters that a certain group of people doesn't actually feel like, hey, uh, I don't feel like I'm equal. I don't feel like I'm being treated with respect, certain things like that, because it also has an impact on who politicians are now because this group isn't actually voting and, and that actually means that their interests aren't actually being protected. What economic policies are actually being um, enacted? Like it has all of those types of diff different impacts. So everyone should care about this, not just black people. Yeah, I, I, I'm so happy that you tied it together. You're right. I believe it's all, it's all related, just like how um, oppression is all related. I, I love how you weave in how um, if you don't have uh, electoral access if you don't have political capital it impacts economics um and we see mm -hmm. that i think that's why folks have always tried to uh take marginalized communities and you know rob them of their right to vote is because they understand yep. that more rep you know with more voting it's more representation yep. and um it's a cycle well let me let me ask you this so you uh you did your studies in lsu but what what mm -hmm. brought you to Clemson in the School of Business? Yeah, sure. So um, in economics, we have what's called a job market. And so um, I entered the job market my fifth year at LSU in my PhD program. Um, I got several offers and Clemson was the best offer to me. Um, I, I actually thought that they, you know, um, I loved the campus visit when I went there. I thought that the co-workers were really good, um, different people that I could work with. Um, and another thing that I thought was kind of like, weird in a sense, but actually kind of empowering as well. Clemson is a former slave plantation, right? So it's kind of crazy that like, yep, <laughs> I'm being hired, yep, right? Yep. To talk about lynching, slavery, racism, where we know for a fact, I mean, I'm not saying that I have documentation of this, but let's be honest, we know that this probably occurred, where lynchings probably occurred on this ground. And these people are willing to take a risk to hire this black girl <laughs> to talk about this stuff where these actually actually occurred and to kind of push the fact that like racism is racism 
past racism still has an impact. We're not even talking about current racism. I'm like, let's, let's talk about the past and how it affects black people. And then we can talk about current stuff that also affects black people as well, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, there's, I'm currently based in Charleston, South Carolina. And so just, you know, mm-hmm. this again, you're from, I'm going to say it like how y'all say you from New Orleans. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so there, there are like so many parallels between um, uh, Charleston and New Orleans. It's almost kind of eerie. Um, and so when you go to Clemson, a lot of what you probably mm-hmm. experienced, and, and that's the upstate, there's so much uh, slave history. And yep. you know, like you said, a lot of our most cherished institutions were built on the, um, the uh, institution of slavery. And um, mm-hmm. I think I'm so happy that you made that distinction. You, you didn't run from that. Not saying you would, but some folks just kind of mm-hmm, ignore mm-hmm. it and don't, and don't pay it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm glad mm-hmm. you did that. So, so now... With that, with that experience that you've had at both LSU and mm-hmm. um, in the upstate of South Carolina, now you're in the DMV area, the, the Washington. Well, you're in Washington D.C. Um, do you mind mm-hmm. sharing what you do now? Yeah, sure. So I work at uh, a nonprofit think tank called Economic Policy Institute, and I basically do the same exact stuff that I was doing at Clemson, minus teaching. <laughs> so I still do research. Um, in particular, I'm looking at, uh, I work in the program on race, race, ethnicity, and economy, which we call PRE. And so basically what I do there is look at how economic policies, economic trends, how do they affect people of different races? In particular, I look at Blacks. Uh, so I'm still working on my lynching paper. I'm still working on a paper that I have on Confederate streets. Uh, I'm also trying to learn more about uh, minimum wage issues. So EPI does a whole host of different things that I uh, I'm trying to actually learn so I can get more into that stuff. But I still do uh, my economic research on race and racism and how it actually affects black people economically and how it affects black people politically. I, I'm, you, should, you should see my facial expression. Like I, I think <laughs> when, when people think of like economists, we don't think typically of those who um, weave in the study of, um, you know, the, the complex study of how our, our, our country came to be and how those institutions, mm-hmm. you know, um, how wealth became an issue and how access mm-hmm. to resources. So you said you did a, a study on Confederate streets. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, 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 sure. So that's another project that I'm working on. So my lynching paper is like, for the most part, almost done. Um, uh, but my Confederate Streets paper, I'm still working on that. So on that, um, I was actually inspired by this uh, because of the Charleston killing, to be totally honest. Uh, again, I'm from New Orleans. We don't have a lot of Confederate flags, but we still have Confederate monuments. We have Confederate streets. Uh, so when I grew up as a little girl, I remember my dad always talking about these things. Um, and I remember like going to a gas station, say, for instance, if I'm driving into like the rural parts of Louisiana, they had these Confederate flags and feeling like from the uh, cashier as if they didn't want us there. It was very clear. Right. So when that killing in Charleston happened, uh, it really affected me because I really just kept thinking, like, how could you have that much hate in your heart that you would sit in a church? You know, uh, pray with people and then murder them like that just to me was just mind blowing. So I was like, you know, there has to be a way in which I can quantify the number of Confederate symbols in an area. And so I found that the census actually has a data set that actually has all of the street names in the United States. So basically what I did was I came up with a list of what I call 25 prominent Confederate generals. 
and I go through this uh, shape file that census has basically. Uh, and I go through and basically count how many streets are named after prominent Confederate generals in an area. Uh, and the first thing I show is that, number one, you see a lot of these Confederate streets in the South, in the rural South, um, where you would expect them to be. Um, number two, I find that, and what I say is that it's a proxy for historical racial animus. So I show that where there were more lynchings in the past, those areas actually have more Confederate streets today, which is crazy. Um, the next thing I show is that, so I kind of say like, okay, this is a proxy for racist attitudes, right? But it doesn't really matter if somebody has racist attitudes, it matters that they have racist practices, racist policies, right? That's when it really becomes problematic. And so I extended to say, okay, well, we know that it's a proxy for racist attitudes. Um, is it, or do we actually say that maybe it's racist practices? So then I look at labor market differentials. So kind of looking at like wage gas and things like that. And what I show is that where there's more Confederate streets, blacks are less likely to be employed, more likely to be employed in low status occupations and have lower wages compared to their white counterparts. And the thing that's really crazy is that uh, it extends to other minorities in general. So you see that this relationship holds for Hispanics, foreign-born individuals, and Asians. And I have to highlight Asians uh, for one reason, because Asians is what uh, I would say most Americans would consider the model minority, right? So like when you see, so my results actually show that in the absence of Confederate streets, where there are no Confederate streets, Asians more likely to be employed, less likely to be employed in these low-status occupations, and have higher wages compared to whites. But when they live in areas with Confederate streets, again, what I'm saying is a proxy for a racial animus, those relationships reverse. So you actually see that, no, now Asians actually are less likely to be employed, more likely to be employed in low-status occupations, and they have lower wages compared to white counterparts. So I kind of say that this is a measure of distaste for others in general, not just Blacks, but basically just, just distaste for minorities in general. Jacoba. Sorry for the long explanation. No, no, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking copious notes. This is, you, so your research literally can like map out how ingrained that Confederate, that mm-hmm. ahistorical, that ahistorical uh, white, white, yep. mythical Confederate yep. culture, how that can impact. You can map that out via streets and see how that, that yep. culture and wow. Yep. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. No, because when they when they say that oh, get over it, we can't get over it if it's ingrained in, in the very systems that we're trying to navigate to get ahead. Oh, exactly. So that would explain a lot with South Carolina. You know, we were I, I often say this not not to be so glib, but I often say we're always at the top of the lists that we should be at the bottom of, like, you know, worse than yep. education and worse than in labor laws or, or you know, there there's no like it's anti union here and um mm-hmm. you know, top the list when it comes to domestic violence deaths um mm-hmm. this can be these these old-fashioned traditional attitudes that are shaped from slavery it could quite honestly the reason why we're, we're you know why we are where we are currently that's wow i didn't i never yep. I, I never knew this was a field of study that an economist could take on you are you are blowing my mind this is yeah, I'm probably not doing. I'm probably not doing a good interview because I'm busy. Like, no, you're good. How are you with like platitudes? 
But um, listen, economists normally don't shower us with uh, praises, so I'll take it off. Okay. <laughs> so, like, look, I again, I used to be a mathematician, and they were not as critical as economists. Economists are the most critical, skeptical, pe- uh, skeptical people I've met in my life. So I will take all of the praises I can get. <laughs> well, well, I think I think that's why I really like your study too, because it's it's on it's based on like statistical like the numbers you're you're using, the information, the data that you're using is you, you know, it's irrefutable in a lot of ways. It's not mm-hmm. emotional. It's it's not something yep. to say, oh, well this is um, you know, this is from a dip no, these these are this is what the, the numbers say. This is what the statistics say. Um Exactly. Yeah, that that's amazing. Oh, so let me ask you this. So the the work you do, you say mm-hmm. you, you're continuing to work on the lynching research and mm-hmm. the Confederate streets. What other types mm-hmm. of um, things do you study uh, or research at your think tank? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one thing that I did, I want to say a couple of, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, I want to say at the end of last year, uh, I'm big into football. <laughs> I mean, I'm from New Orleans. I went to LSU, taught at Clemson, two big football schools. Uh, so one new thing that I've kind of gotten into and I kind of want to push a lot uh, is talking about college athletes uh, and the fact that they deserve pay, um, which is huge okay, to me. Okay. Uh, number one. Let me interrupt you. you talking to one of the biggest yeah, right. girl. <laughs> if there's a way for me to fund this research. <laughs> my Come on. <laughs> Yes, because yes. Like the, the exploitation of college athletes is and yep. it's linked to racial animus. The attitudes about whether or not they yes. deserve pay is largely linked to racial animus. Yes. <laughs> yep. keep going, keep going. You can pull up you can pull up no 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 you can pull up an article from Dabo Sweeney and I wanna say it was in the Los Angeles Times. I'm not totally sure, but I think it was, and I think he did it in October of last year. And basically, uh, you know, the NCAA changed the rules and said, you know, hey, we're going to allow these players in 2021, I think it's 2021, uh, it's either 2021, 2023, um, to make money off of their likeness, image, and their name, right? Uh, and so somebody goes and interviews Dabo Sweeney, uh, which I have respect for him, sure. Okay, fine. And he start, basically starts saying, like, hey, if they start playing college athletes, he's going to quit because there's enough entitlement in the world. And then he keeps going on to say how, like, um, Oh yeah, these 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 players ain't starving. That's what he says, and how they have money for cars and tattoos. And I mean, when he said it, I just was like, "Whoa!" I remember that's I re- crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember the tattoos <laughs> comment. <laughs> yes, I, I. For me, I was blown away, and honestly, and even to this day, like if you know Dabo, tell him me and him can sit down and have a conversation. Like honestly, and I want to have a conversation. I will. It would be a very uh, great conversation. It won't be. Um, I don't plan to come there uh, to argue. I really want to come and talk. Uh, I want to come and talk about your views. I want to talk about my views. Um, and really kind of just get him to understand, like, why that's so problematic, the stuff that he said. Um, because, again, being entitled is relative. And so I said that to say he makes $9 million in South Carolina. So I think a lot of South Carolina re- residents would actually say he's entitled. to make. I mean, that's crazy to me that you actually feel justified that you should make that much money. And what I'm saying is that, again, I'm not even talking about how much you make, because, again, you may say that the market, you may say that, hey, Dabble Swinney, great football court um, a coach, which he is, right? And you may say that the markets have made it to where that that's what your market value is. Okay, if that's the case, fine. Why have we closed the markets to college football players? We're not even allowing them to participate in the market. So even if that's the case, how is it that you're allowed? 
to let the market set your price. But for whatever reason, they're not allowed. That's total crap. It is. Excuse my language, it's total crap. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, it's kind of like, hey, listen, even if you agree with, even if you say that, let's sit down and have that conversation and say again, how is it that these students aren't paid? And I'm going to say something too that like I wrote about, and I can send you the blog too as well if you want to read it. Um, but what annoys me with this whole argument about them being entitled and they already have tuition, I was a PhD student. PhD students at Clemson, LSU, Ohio State, Alabama, all these big football schools, guess what we have? Tuition waivers and a stipend. They pay us to go to school. And now, if, and if, if you think I'm lying, ask them. This is not a made-up story. So my thing is, is that why is it that you can pay PhD students a salary? Because we earn a salary because we work for the school. We sign a contract. We say that we're going to work 20 hours a week. We have to maintain a certain GPA, right? And, and the school says we're going to pay you X amount of dollars. Football players do the same exact thing. They sign a contract. They have to maintain a certain GPA. And they work more hours than PhD students. But if you want to be honest, if you want to go there, and again, people don't want to go there, but let's go there. Look at the racial makeup of PhD students versus the racial makeup of football players. And there you go. And I'm bringing up football players, and I'm bringing up football players because that is a money-generating sport, football and basketball. They are money-generating sports. It's insane how much money they generate. And all I'm saying is I agree. Devil, if you feel, hey, your salary should be $9 million, everyone want to say, hey, he's the best coach, great. All I'm saying is open the market to those players. And I'm saying that the whole likeness and image and all the stuff that the NCAA is talking about, is it a move? Is it a step? Sure. But it's still not, it's still not complete. And that's because the only people who are going to make money off of that are the LeBron James of basketball. And what I'm saying is as a PhD student, I don't have to win a, a Nobel Prize to get my salary. I get accepted into the school. I get the money, period, because I work for the university. Why are you actually saying that, hey, no, Nike has to now sponsor you and give you money? No, the school is making the money. No, your employer is the school. The school should have to pay you. They should have a salary, period. And so let's have that conversation. You know, but again, people don't want to have that conversation because it's like, oh, well, you know, it's going to cut into people's money. And that's the truth. And guess what? It doesn't matter. They deserve that money. They're working for the university. The recruiting students, look at Clemson. Look at how many students Clemson has now recruited because they've been a national championship for the past four years. PhD students don't recruit students like that. They're not. So, again, why are you paying a certain group of people, but you're not paying another group of people? Right. I say look at the composition. Look at the composition, and that's why. And yeah, we don't see this, this argument uh, posed around, like, tennis athletes or golf athletes, Correct. baseball Correct. hockey. It's usually the, the, it's the high, you know, the, the generate, yep. ones that generate wealth, basketball and football, yep. which happen to be predominantly yep. African-American. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I really, um, I'm so happy that, <laughs> that you're actually doing that work as well and being vocal about that. I'm very passionate about that, especially now that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, with the NCAA tournament being canceled due to the coronavirus, um, yep. I, I thought it was a great, like, like a great way to just kind of have a conversation about what, what, the, when I kept saw, seeing all the businesses that said they were hurt by that, I'm like, that just proves mm -hmm. the worth of these student, these yes. students. and they're not yep. student athletes, and a lot of them aren't student athletes. A lot of them just want to play ball, mm -hmm. you know. Um, exactly. And they put those, exactly. those, they put those laws in place so that they have to go to Clemson, they have to go to Duke, um, exactly, you know, before they go into the NBA or to NFL, and and we're we're seeing major disruption, um, like with the uh, the creation of the XFL. So now some players can go to other pro leagues or go to Canada and, and circumvent that whole system. But 
Um, yeah. thank, you, thank you so much for that. I think that was very valuable. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, as someone, I was born and raised in the Northeast, but my parents are both Southern. My mother is a native of North Carolina mm -hmm. and my father is a native mm -hmm. of this area. Um, I never thought beyond, I moved back here six years ago. I never thought I'd move to the South, but something <laughs> called me, something called me here. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know whether or not, are there economic factors? Cause that was one for me where, were there mm -hmm, economic mm -hmm. is there um, eco economic factors that would keep you from moving back to like New Orleans, or do you ever plan on coming back, or what what does that require economically if you did entertain moving back down south? Yeah, so it's uh, and I'll be totally honest, Lord, and I hope my southerners don't get mad at me. I still love the south. Uh, I probably I don't know if I ever see myself leaving a DMV area. Um, the thing about the DMV. Uh, that I think is beautiful is that it is racially, ethnically, uh, uh, it's so diverse on so many different um, different ways in which you could cut it. And for me, that's beautiful to just kind of like meet different people, different cultures. And not only that, there's a strong black population here. Uh, you know, DC is majority black. Um, you have PG County, which is one of the most affluent uh, uh, counties in America uh, for blacks. And so again, to be able to just see all of this, that stuff, to be able to help, to be around black people who are successful, that want to help each other, like that stuff to me is just like, woof. You know, it's almost like I'm addicted to the DMV now. Um, and again, I still love New Orleans. Oh my God, I love my city, love. But do I ever see myself leaving a DMV period? I don't know if I could ever leave the DMV um, to go anywhere to go anywhere because right now I'm just so in love. Now granted, I didn't just move here. <laughs> I didn't move here like nine months ago. So it could just be right now I'm in like that honeymoon phase, you know, where everything is perfect to me, yeah. uh, minus this virus, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but like, otherwise it's still, it's just one of those things where um, for me, um, it's, it's this that you're, you're around so many progressive people. You're around so many people who are like pushing an envelope. I can talk about race and racism in a room full of white people and not get that pushback that you normally get. You get the whole, like, explain to me more. Like, I want to understand what you're talking about. Why do you see it as a race? Okay, who, what about, and, it, and it's for me, that's a beautiful thing. Um, oh, that's, and so, yeah, that's, so right now, I just. Yeah, yeah no, I, um, oh, I, no, spent, I spent a lot of time with my, um, when I was an undergrad, I went to undergrad up in the, the New York metro area. But um, mm -hmm. during that time, I would visit my friend who went to Hampton. And that's when mm -hmm. I fell in love with the DMV area because it yep. was, you know, Chocolate City and, and just yep. amazing and, and all of the schools and, and, and the, it was, it was almost everything you want. It's a mix of both. Like if you wanted more of the suburbs, you can go to Maryland. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, my, my sister used to live in, um, she used to live in uh, Fort Belvoir. So that's Northern Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. and I, so I, I even stayed with her for a length of time. I, I always had an affinity for that area. Um, oh, yes. yeah. 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 So I, I no, I totally get it. I think, yeah, you are in a honeymoon <laughs> phase, but, 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 <laughs> but, but I think you, I think you are doing what there's so many Southerners up there right now. It's not even funny. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I went to a Mardi Gras ball that was put on by people who live here who are from New Orleans and it was a thousand plus people there. Yeah. Like amazing Mardi Gras ball. And that's, and that's the thing I like about DC is that it embraces so many different cultures. And so I still, to some extent, feel like I'm in New Orleans because there's so many people from New Orleans here, you know? Um, but I still, I still, let me be clear, I still want to do research about my city, 
Um, I still want to look at like the education system. Like we moved to charter schools. I still want to do all of that stuff. So I still plan on visiting, you know, helping a lot of stuff like that. But like ever move from the DMV to go anywhere? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm in love I, I t- I'll tell you what it is. I moved from <laughs> Philly. So my, I was, I lived in Philly for 10 years. I'm t- <laughs> it's going to be a blizzard. That's going to make you move. It's a blizzard. <laughs> exactly. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Oh, honeymoon over. I'm done. Divorce. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that was it. I'm like, look, and I'm from Jersey. And I was like, I can't do this. But, <laughs> but what I'm going to do instead of, instead of wishing a blizzard on you, what I'm going to do is speak a summer home, a nice summer home in New Orleans. And like, I'm Oh, yeah. Oh, I can do that. <laughs> oh, I can definitely do that. I can definitely do that. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, this, this was an awesome, um, I'm, this was just an awesome conversation. And I think that um, oh, thanks. If, if anyone else wanted to maybe, I don't know if there's anything folks could follow or anything you've authored. Is there any way that people can kind of engage with your work now? Yeah, sure. If they go to epi.org, um, I work, uh, that's the uh, uh, Economic Policy Institute, the think tank that I work at. Um, and if they go and search for either PRE, P-R-E-E, that's the program I work under, or they can go and search for experts and then find my name, Jacoba Williams, and they can see all of my blogs. Like I have a blog about um, MLK and um, uh, uh, Emma Till connecting um those two i would say mlk's uh i have a dream speech i'm sorry and uh emma till's killing uh i have a blog about uh again why college athletes should be paid um i have a new report that's coming out about lynchings where i'm about to show like the economic outcomes and how again it, it this affects everyone economically that blacks uh may not be registering to vote or participating in the vote because of these past lynchings uh so yeah they can just go to epi.org uh and then find my name and everything will be there Okay, cool. I I definitely will. I'm gonna lift up that work, and I'm gonna make sure you have my personal email account so we, you and I, yes. can, can really keep in touch. Because I really want to hold up your work and and highlight it and and use it uh, to frame some of my arguments. Um, but but thank you, yeah, thank you so much for just you have such a beautiful disposition as well. You're so cheery. Oh. So. <laughs> So thank oh, yeah, that's, that's the ADHD in me, and I'm always happy. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nicole, and I'll definitely be in touch, and, and um, thank you for having uh, for uh, sitting with me for this interview. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Anytime. Thank you so much. <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> okay, bye-bye.